Hello, and welcome to Series 3 of Golden Grenades, a podcast about birds and those of us who love them, all set against the heartwarming and idyllic backdrop of the impending environmental Armageddon. My name is Kit, aka Yolo Birder, and this week I am delighted to welcome as my special guest, Mackenzie Crook. Mackenzie is an actor, writer and director, well known for his roles in films and TV shows such as The Office, Game of Thrones, Britannia, Pirates of the Caribbean and many more, and more recently for his self-written and directed shows, the BAFTA award-winning Detectorists and Wurzel Gummidge for the BBC. Mackenzie, hello and welcome to Golden Grenades. Thanks, kids. It's lovely to be here. So before we talk about, you know, your work on particularly Wurzel and Detectorists, I would like to just ask you a little bit about growing up and how you got into nature, because I know you're very much into wildlife and birds. So was there anything specific that drew you into that as an interest when you were younger growing up? I can't remember like having an epiphany or anything. And to be honest, I can't remember a time when I didn't know the names of the birds that I was seeing. It feels like I've always known, I've always been able to identify the birds. You know, my mum and dad grew up in London and then in the late 60s, they moved out to suburbia. I grew up in suburban Kent, just outside Dartford. And I think it struck my dad suddenly finding himself, you know, on the edge of countryside. And, and he he took it upon himself to start learning the names of birds and the flowers, and he must have passed it on to me. He used to take me and my sisters out on bike rides. And to me, it's really important to know what birds I'm seeing. And I realise it's not important to everyone. A friend of mine recently was telling me that he'd seen a robin in his garden on his feeder. And he said, oh, these, these other little tiny little blue and yellow birds, don't know what they are. <laughs> And I thought, what? But and you've not you've not been tempted to try and find out. I know yeah. it's from just what you said there, but for him, it's not important. But yeah, anyway. So so in my childhood, it was always very important to know what I was looking at. And yeah, to this day, if something flies across my path and I don't know what it is, it will drive me mad until I find out what it is. Yeah, I'm the same. I think I spent a lot of time poring over bird books, you know, learning their names. And people don't necessarily have that same desire to know exactly what it is. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a big part of my childhood. And and all my days, you know, out of school were spent down at the river fishing and, and observing all the wildlife. And then I had this twin good fortune of my aunt emigrated to Zimbabwe or Rhodesia, as it was at the time. And my dad worked for British Airways. So even though we weren't a wealthy family, I found myself going on these amazing holidays to to Rhodesia during the summer holidays and sometimes at Christmas. Most years we'd go to Africa. And that opened up a whole other world of of birds and wildlife. Oh, that must have been amazing. That would have just, I think, blown my mind as a kid to to see all those crazy looking birds. I, I know that, you know, when you were younger, you always imagined that you would be an artist. You've always been interested in in art and drawing. Did you used to draw birds? That was something I spent a vast amount of time doing as a kid. Yes, I did. I did. I was I was always the best drawer in the class, <laughs> in primary school, and that was you know that was a big deal when you were a kid. It was currency. But um, yeah, in fact, uh, yeah. And I remember after one of my trips to Africa, I came back and I was asked to to do a talk to the the school bird watching club about what birds I'd seen. Yeah, these days you'd do a PowerPoint presentation or so, you know, you'd get images up, but I had no way of doing that. So I I painted watercolors of all the birds that I'd seen on A3 paper and, you know, held these up to show show the class. I remember feeling a little bit indignant when everyone laughed at the red knobbed coot. (laughs) Yeah, they all found that hilarious. I was like, come on guys, this is, you know. Serious business. But yeah, so, so yeah, I did draw. Um, I, I do wildlife all the time. That's probably the main thing that I did draw. I was exactly the same. I, I drew birds all the time. And again, I had a bit of a, a bit of currency at school as being the best drawer in the class. Yeah, and I even used to do some trade things for doing other kids' homework. Yeah. I remember I did, a, I did a tiger for Stephen Forrest and he swapped it for my first ever single, which was Stand and Deliver by Adam and the Ants. How superb. Yes. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I remember doing commissions for kids in, in class as well. Yeah, it was a good feeling. <laughs> <laughs> um, just while we're chatting about this, when you were younger, did you used to list birds? Was that a thing that you did? Was that important to you to sort of 
keep a mental list of how many you'd seen? Yes, but I'm not good at keeping lists. And my lists were on scraps of paper that were then lost or in a fold with loads of other stuff. I've, likewise, I've always wanted to keep a diary. And I've got so many diaries with the 1st and the 2nd of January filled in really beautifully and the rest of it yeah. completely blank. And so I'm not good at cataloging and documenting. The thing. This year, I've tried to keep a species list for the first time ever. Uh, and that's been good. That's been great. And, you know, when you spot a new species, adding that to the list, that's just on my phone, though. Yeah, I wish I had ledgers of, of all my data over the years because it would be fascinating to look back on. I'm always really jealous of people who keep these fantastic looking wildlife journals where they document and then they draw or paint amazing things on the on the notebook. And I've tried, but, you know, like you say, it's a bit of a commitment, isn't it? Yeah. You know, to yeah. keep up with that sort of thing. So with the wildlife and the birds that you see, do you tend to go out of your way or is it more seeing what comes to you? Yeah, it's the latter, I'm afraid. And the, the times when I go out bird watching are so few and far between. It's, my wife calls it one of my imaginary hobbies and in that metal detecting and fishing as well. You know, I have lots of know-how, I have all the equipment, but I never go. And if I do go, I never see anything, catch anything or find anything. But <laughs> see, yeah, I mean, this, for the past, you know, 20 years, 18 years, bringing up kids, we will go out on country walks, but the kids are always run ahead to scare anything off before I can get there. So yeah. It's only now that I feel like I'm in a position, my kids are teenagers, that I'm, I'm going to start going out. And I did some filming this year on Wurzel Gummidge and on Britannia, where we went out to some really quite remote locations. And yeah, I saw, I started seeing birds that I'd not seen before. And, and yeah, I'm, I'm ready to start going out now and, and seeking out the birds that I've wanted to see for years, but I've always eluded me. You mentioned Wurzel there, and obviously you've, you've done a few episodes now of your version of Wurzel Gummidge. The version that, that a lot of people will remember of old was a, a real must-watch back when, when certainly when I was a kid and, and people of, of our age. And your version has become, I think, a real family favourite too. We all watch it as a family. I've got a couple of kids and we always make a point of sitting down together. To, we save it until we can all watch it together. Even my parents, you know, love watching it. It's, it's a fantastic thing. How, how did it come about? Was that something that you just thought of and pitched or was that something you were asked to do? Yeah, no, somebody came to me. They'd acquired the rights to the original novels written by Barbara Youth and Todd in the 30s and 40s. And they just came to me and asked if I was interested in adapting the books into a, a new version. And the truth is I'd never watched the old version. It just wasn't on my radar as a kid. I guess, yeah, yeah. I guess it was on ITV and we were one of those weird BBC families that sort of right. frowned upon commercial television. So I didn't watch it. And as such, I felt like I was in probably the best position to do a new adaptation completely, you know, with, without that one in my head. And immediately I, I had a, a picture in my head of what he would look like with that, the old military red coat and the wide brimmed hat and the twiggy fingers. And yeah, it just, I suppose it was a visual thing, but I just finished doing Detectorists, which was all set out in the English countryside. And Wurzel Gummidge felt like an evolution from that, where I could explore more the, the mythical and the folklore and, and the magical side of things as well. So, yeah, but I was just, I, I felt like my business in the English landscape was not yet done. Thankfully for all those viewers, I think. And you've created this sort of wonderful, earthy, folky feel to Wurzel. And, and obviously, that started in Detectorist. It's very much, like you say, a progression and, you know, that sort of feel to both shows. Was that always the way you imagined it or did that sort of develop organically as you as you started? Yes, I think when I initially envisaged it, it was, it was a lot darker, more sort of Tim Burton-esque. But then as I started writing it, I, I realised that, yeah, this needed to be a celebration of English countryside and English wildlife and and sort of to encourage an appreciation of the beauty and diversity of our wildlife. And so it became a less sort of sinister, dark thing and a, a, just a warmer, uncynical, yes, yeah, joyous thing, I suppose. Yeah, and I, and I think it is, you've successfully done that. It is all of those things. It is just a lovely, heartwarming, gentle, little bit of mild peril, which never <laughs> yeah. hurts anyone. And 
kids love a bit of mild peril and you know it's it's fantastic I, in the in the latest episode the new character they introduced guy Fawkes, hilariously played by paul k i must add what a turn that is he upsets wurzel by saying that his, his job is easy and so he gets goaded into sort of having a, a bashed crow scaring himself that doesn't go exactly to plan and then when all the crows surround him and, and he's doing an awful job did i notice a hooded crow in the mix you did yes <laughs> we um yeah, the 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 crow handler excellent guy named anthony came along with a selection and usually i'm a real stickler for accuracy in those sorts of things he, he i think he had two carrion crows a couple of scrawny jackdaws this hooded crow and an Indian house crow, which is, so there's one of them in there as well. And yeah, I don't know, Scatterbrook is a fictional place. I think you do get hooded crows on the Isle of Wight. Is that right? I wasn't aware of that. I, th I, I thought it was mainly Scotland and we get oh, the occasional one in Northumberland, but maybe you're right. I wasn't sure. Okay, well, anyway, this one, this one's just happened to, to, to find its way to Scatterbrook. <laughs> You've got away with it, although I do think you've got some fairly eagle-eyed viewers watching Wurzel because you know, it was pointed out to me and I missed it on the show that in the corner of one scene right at the back, there was two little figures in the corner of a field with a, a yellow car and detectorist fans everywhere, <laughs> obviously just punching the air and stuff. <laughs> uh, I, love, I love those little those little elements that you squeeze in. Yeah, thank you. And if, if we ever do any more detectorists, then I'm definitely going to have a scarecrow in the, in the deep back of one of the shots. Yes, and, and hopefully you will. I'm going to ask you a little bit about that in a, in a moment. The other thing I must say, the little joke, which was not even a, maybe a joke, but it was just like a little side thing in Wurzel this time, was when the kids come up to, to Wurzel for the first time at the start of the episode. And clearly the actor who plays, sorry, what's the boy called again? Uh, yeah, Thierry plays uh, John. John, that's right. He's clearly shot up since the last episode. And you obviously realise that everybody in the land is going, by. he's grown, hasn't he? Or he's had a growth spurt. And then Wurzel turns to him and says, have you shrunk? <laughs> and it was just a, a lovely little side joke, which might not have been picked up on by people, but I just thought that was brilliant. Thank you. Yeah, and I, I anticipated that. I wrote that way before I'd seen Thierry and seen that he'd shut up, I just and thought, yeah, I bet he's going to be a giant by this point. <laughs> <laughs> um, my kids were wondering, how long does your Wurzel makeup take? It ended up taking about an hour and a half, I suppose, at the end. But the first couple of times I had it applied, it was probably three and a half, four hours. And yeah, that... that was a quite a bleak prospect, but they, they managed to, to get the time down to about an hour and a half, which I really didn't mind in the end. It's quite a meditative time. It's sort of this slow transformation in front of the mirror. So it was, a, it was a, like a getting into character time. He looks, you know, he's got this perfect otherworldly look to him and almost sort of, he wouldn't be out of place skulking around the background in Jabba the Hutt's palace in Star Wars. And I, I think I read somewhere that you used to collect Star Wars figures as a kid. Is that is that true? Yeah, well, I, I mean, collect, you know, I had probably a dozen of them. Those those first Star Wars figures that came out, I used to love them. I really yeah. did. But somebody was recently talking about the possibility of doing some merchandise for Words of Gummage and wouldn't action figures be great with all the little scarecrow characters? And I suddenly realised that now when I look at an action figure, I just see a lump of plastic yeah. that could end up in a dolphin's gullet or, you know, yeah. it just, every action figure that has ever been made still exists somewhere yeah. on Earth. And I don't want to be responsible for churning out more stuff that people don't really need. So, so yeah, I think the time, yeah. I used to love action figures, but I think their time is probably coming to an end. <laughs> yeah, no, and I think, I, I think I feel exactly the same. I'm glad my kids are a little bit older now and don't, don't need lumps of plastic anymore. Yeah. You know, so that's, uh, uh, yeah, a relief. And I had an action figure made of me for the uh, Pirates of the Caribbean movies and what a year or so after they were released you know all the jack sparrow action figures have been snapped up but there were bargain buckets full of my action figure outside toy shops. <laughs> <And I> thought, <laughs> there you go that's what yeah it being an action figure is one thing but being a bargain bucket action figure i, I, I guess that knocks you down a peg or two <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> um 
So we've mentioned a couple of times detectorists, which, as I've said, has been my favorite thing on telly for years. And that must have been a, a real passion project for you because it's crammed with so much love and, you know, fantastic characters and relationships between them. You know, Terry and Sheila, I just love. How did the idea for that one germinate? Was that something that you were interested in first and then developed the show or what happened there? No, it wasn't. It was an episode of Time Team that I saw years ago. It was a Time Team special and they'd in just interviewed this couple of guys, detectorists, who who'd been turning up all this Viking stuff in a field and it, it had become really quite suspicious. And these guys were suspicious and they took the time team there, but insisted they were blindfolded in a car. And I just thought these, this is these interesting people. These are, and I started looking into it and I found that, yeah, it's, a, it's one of those hobbies that attract obsessive um, people. And, and I started looking into it and, and got interested in, in that. And at first I didn't quite know what it was, whether it was a comedy or a drama but yeah, it developed into this friendship. I started writing these little bits of dialogue, two guys out in the field just just talking rubbish and, and how blokes talk when they're not with their partners. I was interested in that. And anyway, and it, it developed into this thing with, you know, the, the background of this hobby of metal detecting, but really it was about their lives and, and what they were searching for in their lives. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, I think, again, you know, that really comes across and the relationships are so beautifully written, not least Lance and Andy and the, the relationship between them. I was going to ask you, you know, your character Andy found a Jim will fix it badge in, in one episode and, you know, squirrels it away and, you know, pretends it's nothing and he hasn't found it. But did you ever write into Jim will fix it as a kid? I did. I did. What did you ask for? I asked. I asked to meet Darth Vader. Brilliant. Now I'm not I'm not sure quite what I was getting at, whether I wanted to meet someone dressed up in his costume or whether I wanted to meet David Prowse. But I think what I was doing was I was picking something that I thought had a good chance of getting picked up because uh -huh. I, I, I sort of noticed a pattern that if you put something to do with popular culture, then more likely to pick that. Yeah. And soon after I'd written in, I think I realised I didn't want to go on TV and meet Darth Vader, and I then spent years dreading them finding my getting called <laughs> up to do it. You know. <laughs> yeah. I I yeah. I think it was a it, it was a thing that that lots of us did at the time. I wrote in asking to do falconry, and I wasn't picked up. I th again, I, I think I thought that's doable. They can do that. Yeah. You know, but I. It's nice to know that all these years later, I'm still on brand anyway. <laughs> A mate of mine wrote in and asked if he could swim in a swimming pool full of monster munch. Now, I, I think that was an unlikely request. <laughs> Before we've gone off detectorists, I just wanted to ask you, you're a detectorist now yourself, and have you found anything of note, anything exciting? Yes, I have. I mean, I've found some great stuff over the years, but my best thing was, uh, sorry, um, your listeners can't see it, but I'm getting it out of the box. Tiny piece of Roman gold jewellery. Oh, wow. It's a, a pendant or an earring, and it's got a little... Yeah, yeah. It's got a bird embossed upon it, in fact. I don't know oh, if you're able to pick it up. But it's got a long-necked bird, an ibis or something, with its neck curled back. And, yeah, I found this and declared it, and it was declared treasure, and nobody... It was offered to museums. Nobody wanted it because it's pretty beaten up and squashed. But, um, but, yeah, so I got it back. And so that's my treasure. That's my goal being declared treasure that's that's special that's brilliant yeah. yes <laughs> and did you i mean i'm sure you've been asked this but did you do the gold dance i didn't because it, it's another bit of a detectorist cliche story but it was the last signal of the day going back to the car the sun was coming down i didn't realize what i got i thought it was a piece it looks like a piece of folded up foil a milk bottle top or something it wasn't till i got home and brushed the dirt off it i realized what it was and then dancing in my kitchen didn't seem right so no i never did <laughs> yeah. do you have any plans to write any more detectorists because if you do i've got a couple of ideas for new episodes if you need any help so what about lance and andy are coming to the new patch to discover it covered in twitches looking for a rare pippet or something or i was thinking you could do a road trip up to the roman wall in northumberland in the tr7 and it could break down and hijinks and hilarity could ensue. 
you think are you going to do more i would love to write more is the truth um I, there, there are no concrete plans to do it at the moment i've been asked before about go, taking them elsewhere even taking them overseas but i've got this feeling that the suffolk countryside where we shoot is as much of a character as anyone else in it so i don't really want to take them out of Danebury. As far as the twitches yeah. are concerned, I'm afraid I've already done an episode of Wurzel Gummidge, which is out this Christmas, no called Twitches, in, no way. in which uh, a flock of chuffs is blown inland to Scatterbrook and, and settles in Ten Acre Field. But with them, or close behind them, is a whole horde of twitches that turns up and, and all binoculars and telescopes are trained on Wurzel and Ten Acre Field, so he can't do a thing to scare these chuffs away which is a big deal in the scarecrow world to, to get a chance of scaring a chuff is, you know, one for the CV. Uh, <laughs> that sounds fantastic. I thought it was a, a, a silly idea, but you've thought of it already and you've run with it. That's amazing. <laughs> Before we delve into your top five birds, one last question, if you don't mind, I read a few years back that you bought some land, including a wood and you've been sort of cultivating and rewilding that. Yeah, this was probably 12 years ago now. And, uh, it was, I'd just done a job. I've forgotten what the job was, but it was a particularly lucrative film or TV job. And I found myself with a pot of money and I wanted to buy something. And I was on the brink of buying a Ferrari, an old vintage Ferrari. And it's kind of laughable when I think about it now. Growing up in the 80s, I always lusted after, you know, those, those supercars that you got posters for and put up on your bedroom wall. And I, there was a specific vintage Ferrari that was on the brink of buying when I suddenly woke up and thought, that's ridiculous. You know, <laughs> you're trying to be an environmentalist that, you know, it's just the most silly thing to buy. And so I bought what I thought was the opposite of a Ferrari, which was 10 acres of woodland, eight acres of woodland in Essex. And it's the best thing I've ever done. I, I love I love it. It doesn't need me to do anything. But, you know, my, my responsibilities are to clear up any fallen trees, anything that's dangerous, but it, it gets on with it by itself. Um, and, and yeah, it's beautiful. Oh, that's fantastic. And have you attracted things there? Or I'm guessing you, you're just sort of like keeping it perfect for the species that already exist. What, what sort of species do you get there? I've got long-term plans from it. I, re I really need to, to thin it a bit. It's, the, the canopy's too dense at the moment, and it will really benefit from me uh, felling a few trees here and there, letting some light down to the, to the floor. But I've got this romantic mm -hmm. idea that I don't want to take chainsaws in there. I want to do it by hand. I, I want to do this, yeah. you know, over a matter of years. Um, but, I, I mean, there's, yeah, there's badger sets in there. I've seen all three types of woodpecker in the woods. Lesser spotted woodpecker, only, I've only spotted it twice in my woods, but, and I don't think it breeds there. But great spotted and green peckers certainly breed there. Otherwise, I haven't seen anything particularly unusual. Sparrow hawks and, and your normal woodland birds, and I've heard cuckoos from there. But it's, it's a properly isolated piece of woodland. And I never see any, any evidence of anybody going through there. Not that I've ever tried to keep anyone out, but yeah, it, it it really feels like a proper wild piece of woodland. That's amazing. Lesser spotted woodpeckers, you know, that's that's a dream bird for me. You know, I've I've, I've never seen one. Um, Have you not? You know, we don't get no, we don't get them up here. You know, you get the occasional report, but you know, and if they are breeding in anywhere near me, then it, it's kept quiet, I would imagine. But yeah, I, I've never gone out of my way at the right time of year to see them because they're they're quite hard once the leaves hit the trees, aren't they? To see, yeah. Um, yeah. But they're a, a, a bird in massive decline as well you, uh, on the red list. So, yeah, hopefully there'll be more to come. So I would love to sit here and ask you about detectorists and Wurzel all day, but we need to get down to business, Mackenzie. Yes. Um, there is the trifling matter of an environmental apocalypse occurring here, and you need to choose five birds to bundle onto the imaginary ark. The five species that will join you on your mad Maxian odyssey of survival in this desolate new world. So... Tell us about bird number one. Bird number one. One, one, one. Bird number one, I'm amazed to hear that it's not been chosen before. It's the robin. And I choose it because of uh, uh, yeah, an extraordinary five-year relationship I've had with a robin in my garden. Um, and, and I've 
Yeah, I wrote in my email to you, it's been the privilege of my life to be so close to a wild bird and observe its behaviour in such minute detail. And I, I understand this individual so well that uh, it's, it's quite a revelation to me. I couldn't believe we've done 20 episodes of the podcast and it's never been mentioned before because they're ever present, you know, they're, they're here all year round and people have such a, or a lot of people have a real relationship with the robin in their garden. Has, has yours got a name? It has. It's, and yeah, I'm a bit embarrassed about naming wild birds, but, uh, but he's called Winter George. And it, that uh -huh. name came about because uh, I have a tortoise called George who follows me around like a dog all summer and, and through the warm months. And then one winter he went into hibernation and he, his place was taken over by, by this robin who I decided to call Winter George. Um, and yeah, over the course of a few months, I tempted him closer and closer with, with grubs and tidbits that I was finding while I was gardening until one day he came to my hand and ever since that day, he's turned up every single day and feeds from my hand and, and comes indoors. This right. is all, I have to say, this is all up until a couple of weeks ago and he's disappeared. He's gone. And um, um, one of his chicks from one of his broods this year seems to have taken over. And yeah, so I don't know if that's the end of him. He's disappeared for periods before and then turned up again and he's straight back in. And yeah. lots of people say, how do you know it's the same one? But it's so the same one. He, you know, he's so tame. He displays the same uh, behaviour every time he comes back. Yeah, that's amazing. I wonder, you know, obviously he has gone away and then he's come back again. It's that time of year, isn't it, though? Because robins are obviously very territorial and your garden has clearly been Winter George's patch for for years but then i believe that around about autumn time you know that there starts to be a little bit more of a, a tussle for territory you know anticipating the the, the following spring and the, and the youngins from the year can start you know getting a little bit boisterous and you mentioned there so that there seems to be a youngster there so whether that one's temporarily sort of taken over or whether that one will become your new robin who yeah. knows Although, yeah, this Winter George, as I say, has been around for five years so far. And that amazed me. I, I didn't realise such a small bird could live for that long. It's so alert the whole time and in fear for its life the whole time that I can't believe it doesn't burn out quicker. Um, but yeah. yeah, I mean, do you have any idea just how long those small songbirds can live? Yeah, I think most sort of small garden birds and it's the first year which is the the time of most danger and i think robins if they can overcome i think the average life expectancy of a robin is about 12 13 months something like that because of that right. first year being the danger period and then i think if they can overcome that they can i mean i've read some records saying that they can live 12 13 14 years but i'm not sure how accurate those are but certainly i think there's well documented evidence that they can live eight nine years anyway yeah. Yeah. So yeah, Winter George is maybe just checking out his options before yes, yeah, yeah, before coming back to the easy pickings of your hand. Yeah, but I have over the years observed some really interesting behaviour from him. And there was a couple of things I wanted to run past you. One time was I was sitting there feeding him. He was just coming to my hand, taking worms. I was sitting in my shed door. Suddenly he flew past me, and then sort of cowered in behind me on on the stool. He was just sitting there, sort of right in close. I looked right. out and possibly 30 seconds later, a sparrowhawk flew over and he <laughs> came back out again and carried on. But at that moment, you know, I don't know, I, whatever signs he'd seen or heard, I, I hadn't observed them. But he definitely came in and used me for protection. Wow. So that was lovely. Yeah. Another time I was in, got into this routine of I'd be working in my shed, he'd turn up and then I'd turn around, take the box of mealworms and feed him and he'd take as many as he wanted until he was full, and then he'd fly off, sometimes 10 or 12 mealworms. One time, I started feeding him like this, and then my wife called me from the house. So I put the lid on the box, and we started going to the house, and he dive-bombed me and, and pecked the top of my head until I turned back, took the lid off the box, and let him finish up his worms. <laughs> now, I'd always assumed that our relationship, he or he thought that I was a pig in the woods, snuffling about, and he, you know, that gets the grubs that I but this was sort of acknowledging that he was he knows that I'm deliberately giving him food and he was saying yeah I'm not finished yet and this turned yeah. into a thing if ever I tried to 
walk away when he wasn't finished, he'd pet my head. And that seems extraordinary to me because that's that wasn't aggressive get out of my territory behavior. It was no. come back. And give me some more stuff. Yeah. Yeah. No, that is fascinating. What time of year was it? This was, yeah, November time. It was around about this time. Right. So, you know, not breeding time, not feeding young, not desperate to fatten them up or anything. Mm -hmm. But I have a friend called Dominic Cousins, who's, who's a bird writer and an expert on bird behavior. I'll run that past him and he'd see if he's heard about that before, because that is that is fascinating. Yeah. They're great birds. And obviously they've got a lot of sort of folklore behind them. They, you know, they're associated with religions and Christmas time and cards and, and, and all of that. But as you've alluded to, they're very intolerant of any intrusion, aren't they? they, they they're like this, this is my land, get off my land. Yeah. You know, I, I'm sure they'd vote Brexit if they could, um, or if they had to. And interestingly, compared to a lot of the birds that we're going to talk about and, and birds that often crop up on this podcast, which are birds of bad omens, a robin has always been seen as a, 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 a bird of good omen, right. you know, um, and if you if you harm a robin, it's it's going to be bad things would happen. So, you know, there's that old saying, kill a robin or a wren, never prosper boy or man. And William Blake said, a robin rest red breast in a cage puts all heaven in a rage. And I read as well that, you know, a lot of songbirds in harder times get eaten, you know, when people are desperate, even even here in the past, there was a really bad winter in 1947 when people were trapping songbirds and using them for the pot, but not the robins. They would deliberately try not to eat the robins, or if they caught one, they would bury them rather than, than eat them. Interesting birds as well, I think, in terms of that that sort of reverence that we give to them. Yes, yeah. I had one as well in the in the start of lockdown when everybody was doing the garden yes. <laughs> um, last spring. And there was one that he didn't stick around for more than a couple of weeks, but he really loved those, I don't know what you call them, those little orange, thin, squiggly, sort of like almost like a very thin centipede type yes. thing. And if I was digging and I would find them, yep. Put one on my hand that, that they were his favorite that's that's why i tempted my one with first of all yeah i noticed that he he loved those those things yeah that's like their uh catnip isn't it so i don't know if you've ever dissected a robin pellet but i've done that i don't think there's many oh really yeah see i didn't realize songbirds produce pellets but one day yeah he was sitting on my windowsill hopped up something looked like a little black apple pip or something but i crushed it and it was made up of tiny fragments of like beetle shell uh, or you know blue bottle exoskeleton just like little bits of glitter and that's that's what it was yeah. it was a pellet amazing amazing right well listen let's move on tell us about bird number two. Two, two, two. bird number two i believe you have had before and it's the yellow hammer and it's I think possibly it's the first bird that I identified by myself as a kid. And, you know, maybe that was one of those moments when, when the bird world opened up to me. I, I just remember hearing this, hearing this call from the hedgerow on blazing hot days, this call that was just the sound of summer, but realizing that I'd never seen what's producing it. And so I went out and looked for it. And when I saw this incredible, yellow bird sitting on top of the hedge really blasting out this song um and then went back found out what it was uh, yeah I, I i felt like i had this piece of information that nobody else knew i i'd never heard of a yellow hammer before and yet there it was and now i knew what it was um yeah it's the sound of summer and childhood to me i suppose yeah that incredible looking birds as well and i think you know you tend to you know, unless you stop and look at them, you know, the calls very repetitive and but it is that that height of summer type thing. I used to I remember being fascinated by them as a kid and, and it was more the name. I just loved that name, you know, Yellow Hammer. It's just so cool. And I was so disappointed to find out that it was nothing to do with hammers and just the, the old German name Ammer means bunting, you know. Right. But again, they've had a bit of a sad decline as well despite being, you know, revered and written about by in poems by Thomas Hardy and Robert Burns. And they've captured the imagination of people for generations. But yeah, with with all the, the sort of agricultural changes and things there, they're on the decline as well and on the on the red list. Do you know about their eggs? Uh, no, I don't think I do. So they used to get called the scribble bird or the scribble lark because they've got these very fine scribbly markings on their egg, which are a very dark red colour. And it used to be believed in, in olden times that 
the yellow hammer had a, a drop of the devil's blood in its tongue and that the scribbly markings on the egg were a message from the devil. And if you could decipher it, you would be able to, to read a, a message from Beelzebub himself. How cool is that? That's amazing. So the robin is associated with good luck and the yellow hammer is associated with Lucifer himself. Yeah. <laughs> amazing. It's crazy. Makes me think differently of the yellow hammer when I, when I see it. I love it, yeah. Because there was that always wound me up that people would go on about a little bit of bread and no cheese. Yeah. Like, what is that even an expression? And, and I could <laughs> hear it, you know. I'd never heard anybody go, a little bit of bread and no cheese. That's not a thing, you know. What, what are they talking about? But, and yet it's yeah. brought up every time somebody mentions the yellow hammer. <laughs> I know, it, it, and I think it is one of those things that people know, and I think it's because it's just so stupid, because it doesn't really sound like that. I've, it's interesting that you put the, the long on the no. I always thought it was even stupider because it was trying to make cheese sound like it was two syllables, like cheese at the end, you know, which made it even more nonsensical, but it is, it, it's, it's ridiculous. Um, right, let's move on. Bird number three. Bird number three. All right, this is a complicated one because it was initially going to be a Dartford warbler, a bird which I've never even seen a live one. I grew up in, in the town of Dartford, um, and uh, which I believe they were first discovered on Dartford Heath in, in the 18th century, but I don't think they've been seen there since. Um, and it seems a bit unfair to name a, a bird after a place where they were just passing through. But... Um, <laughs> As I was as I was writing my list, literally as I was writing my list to send back to you uh, a few days ago, and I was wondering whether to put the Dartford Warbler. At that point, a grey heron landed in my garden for the first time. I've lived here 20 years, I've never seen a heron in my garden. It landed and stalked up to my pond, which is right in front of my window here. And I had to make this, this snap decision whether... I could sacrifice a couple of my fish and enjoy the spectacle of a of a heron in my in my garden catching my fish. But I love my fish. They're they're tench and they're crucian carp, and I've had them for ten years. And I, I ended up banging on the window and frightening away this heron. <laughs> we then flew up to the roof up there and and watched me for a, an hour or so, just just staring me out. But I took it as a sign, so I'm not going to include the Dartford Warbler and Grey Heron. It was going to be my third bird because it was so impressive. It was just, just a ridiculous animal to see so close up. It was two, three meters away from me here, and it was prehistoric. And you forget what an impressive bird it is, and the plumage is just so exotic. Uh, yeah, it was like having a dinosaur in my garden. Yeah, you know, I think a lot of the birds we end up talking about on this podcast are sometimes birds that you take for granted. Certainly for me, I, I live in, in Northumberland at the top end of the Tyne and, and I do, I, I, I see them sort of daily and don't pay much attention to them because I'm looking for my dippers or I'm, I'm trying to spot the otters or, or something a bit more exciting to me, but they are the fantastic birds. And you know, if this was a, a rare visitor to the UK, everybody would be so excited to see one, wouldn't they? Because yeah, they're, they're yeah, stonking looking birds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, yeah, I find it extraordinary that I get those and such a big diversity of birds in my North London garden, which I don't remember ever seeing in suburbia out in Kent. I've seen upwards of 40 different species in or from this, this tiny garden. Yeah, so that's extraordinary to, to see something like that. Yeah. yeah, that's brilliant. Another bird I think associated with fairly good omens. I think if one lands on your roof like yours did, that's a good sign. Apparently that means you'll be prosperous. So that's good. Maybe less so the, the fish in your pond. I love their old vernacular names, you know, Frank, Old Frank, Old Nog, Nori the Bogs. They've had all these, these, these funny names. I don't know where they come from. And then the nesting, is that right? They all nest together in huge heronries or do some of them go off individually? And I... There used to be a cluster, like a little heronry near me, and I've always believed that they are communal in that sense, you know, like COVID's almost, you, right. you know, that they do get together at. Never witnessed that. That must be an extraordinary sight. Yeah, yeah, especially when you can see the youngsters poking their heads out and, and you know, these scruffy little scrawny long-necked things. The, the collective noun is a siege of herons as well. I love that. Yeah. 
can't imagine them laying siege to anything, but you know, it's it's still quite cool. Yeah. The other thing about herons is they're they're very sort of weather dependent, obviously, because their food is all from under the water. And if that water freezes over, so in, in bad winters, you know, heron populations can drop by 60, 70%, I believe. I so yeah, one one <laughs> one benefit to go global warming, maybe. <laughs> but yeah, kraken birds, and like you say, very prehistoric looking as well. Right, let's move on. Tell us about your fourth choice. Bird number four. Okay, my fourth bird is the tawny owl. And I've chosen it over the barn owl for some reason, because I was always bewitched by barn owls as a kid because of their, you know, the ghostliness of them. But I see and hear tawny owls in my garden these days, and they just seem like, I don't know, the essence of a woodland distilled into a bird. I, the call of them I had a brilliant experience which I used to write with this guy in America and we used to write over Skype and one time we were writing it was evening for me daytime for him in the states and an owl started hooting outside my window and then he started hooting he could do a really good hoot he started hooting from America over Skype and for a while it seemed like they were communicating backwards and forwards <laughs> over the Atlantic Ocean via Skype. Since then, I started, to, I started to doubt it because is it not the, the male that hoots? And then the female answers with a screech. And, and now I'm doubting whether two male owls would have hooted to each other. But for years, I thought that this was the case, that these, these, this owl was communicating with my friend in America via Skype. Weirdly, I had a very similar experience. So one time years ago maybe about 10 years ago i could hear an owl so i went out with my son who was the toddler at the time and we went out on the back step and i had like a little it was like a little whistly thing that that had been given to me as a novelty gift because uh, i like birds and it, it, it makes the sound of an owl so i frantically got this thing and then waited for the owl to to do its yeah. kind of call and then i did it on the whistle i replicated and instantly the bird flew towards us. It landed on the, the street light right outside the house. Wow. And it went back and forwards. And my son was like, I am talking to an owl. I am, can't believe I'm literally talking to it. And it did, it went back and forwards. It was it was strange. But yeah, you've, you've got that difference between the, the hoo-hoo and the, the, the kivik kind of yes, call. Right. And I think that's where the, the two sexes and combining those has come up with the twit to woo thing, even though it doesn't really sound like that. Um, okay, yeah. Well, that's that's what seemed like it was going on. But anyway, um, they they don't turn up very often. Two, three times a year. I have a huge copper beech tree in my back garden, which was coincidentally planted by Peter Sellers in the fifties. My house used to belong to Peter Sellers, and anyway, oh, wow. this tree is just it. You know, it attracts so much wildlife, and and. I've seen sparrow hawks in there and, and this tawny owl turns up sometimes and that's just a magical night when that happens. One thing about them is they're a, obviously like a lot all owls and lots of nighttime birds, they're birds of bad omens and prophets of mischief and all of that. But tawny owls are very vicious and you know the bird photographer Eric Hosking lost an eye to a tawny owl attack by getting a bit too close and wow, really? famously, you know, yeah, came at him and just plucked his eye out. I think that's slight exaggeration. I think it damaged his eye and he, yeah. and he lost it later. But at this point on, on that tip, I have a, a little thing that we, we do where I try to ask a question where maybe you've never been asked it before and, and probably won't get asked it again. Zero punches pulled. pulled my zero punches pulled question so in the pirates of the caribbean movies your character Regetti has a wooden eye if you were to lose an eye to an attack from any species of bird which would it be it's a very good question kit and well I, when you said that what jumped into my head immediately wasn't a bird of prey or or a corvid like ripping and pecking but but something i saw the other day which was a wood pigeon which was wolfing down acorns, just one after the other, just gulping them down. I lost count of how many it, it swallowed in the end. But I was just thinking, that's ridiculous. What possible <laughs> nutrition can you be getting from those little balls of wood? Um, and so, and 
but I, I, it was fascinating to watch and, and I've always found birds that gorge themselves on berries and haws and hips. I, I love watching that. I know you're a big fan of the waxwing, but if I could, if I could scale up a hawfinch to the size of a buzzard, I'd like to see that pluck my eyes out and swallow them whole. Oh yeah. 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 Nice, nice clean be. fluid motion, perhaps holding both my eyes in its beak for a while now. And they're dead down. <laughs> That's an excellent image. I've always, you know, imagined a shrike, a, a, you know, a great grey shrike plucking my eyeball out and then plonking it on its fence next to its lizards and, Ooh. you know, other other sort of things in its larder. Yeah, the optical nice. nerve just hanging down. Yeah. 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 Just for extra horror. Yeah, that'd be great. Right. Enough of this tomfoolery. Let's move on. Let's talk about your, your fifth and final bird. Bird number five. Okay, this is an odd one. Uh, it's another one with hammer in the name. It's an African bird, the hammercop. I don't know how how widely known this is, but it's been a big bird in my life. I, I said before about how I used to go on trips to Africa, and um, I, I went started going from when I was a baby, but the first trip I really remember, I guess I must have been about eight or nine, and in the period between then and the, the previous trip, I suddenly got really interested in birds. And I remember coming in on the plane into Salisbury Airport. And before the plane had even landed, I'd spotted these birds that turned out to be paradise widers. These oh, yeah. incredible small birds but with this massive long two foot tail. I spotted those from the plane. And then this flock of brown birds by this pool of water. And on the drive from the airport back to my family's farm, I asked my aunt what these birds might have been. She didn't know, so she pulled over at the next town and, and bought me this book, the Bundu book. And um, from that, I was able to start identifying all these crazy birds that I saw. And, and these brown ones by in the airport were hammercocks. And they're a wading bird, really strange, hammer-headed wading bird, this really odd uniform brown, colouring pencil brown. They just... Um, but again, they're, they're very prehistoric looking. And I've chosen them, I think, just to sort of symbolise all, all the incredible new birds that I saw on these trips to Africa that just blew my mind. You've seen hammercocks. Are you aware of them? No, I haven't. I've been to I've been to Tanzania, but unfortunately it was in that period in between me being a, a bird enthusiast as a kid and then rediscovering it as a younger adult. But yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd love to see them. I'd love to see one of their nests. Have you seen? Yes, it Extraordinary, and I think they take months and months to construct. Yeah, this huge citadel up in the the fork of a tree with with secret entrances that, that they fly up. Is that right? Yeah, I mean they're crazy. I didn't know about this about them, but they they build these massive two meter nests. Both birds contribute to making it, and loads and loads of sticks, thousands of sticks and mud, and then they sort of put a roof over it, almost like a long tailed tit creating this nesting chamber and these aren't small birds they're, they're sort of fairly medium you know they're, they're a decent size so you know just, just that they create this sort of encapsulated nest but then the incredible thing is that they cover it in all sorts of rubbish that they find you know human detritus and you know bicycle tires and cassette tapes i read about you know finding in these nests and bits of clothing bones they before there was so much human rubbish, I guess they would often decorate them with bones and things like that. Crazy. And then are these used year after year? Or like how many chicks do they raise in something like this? Because it's so much effort to go into. You'd, you'd hope that, you know, they were churning out hundreds of chicks. I think what happens is the nests often get taken over by other animals, you know, other birds right. or, or even snakes. And I think this is one of the reasons why they've got a bit of, they're, they're another bird with, that have got a lot of sort of, folklore attached to them and in this case obviously african folklore and they're associated with the witchcraft and the occult and i think it's because often their nests are overtaken by other species oh, yeah. and then they you know the belief is that they're shapeshifters and so if you see a cobra coming out of a nest it's like the birds changed into a cobra and that's spooky and a bad thing and you know a lot of tribes used to say if you harm them it was taboo you would you get struck by lightning or your house would be destroyed by fire they do actually build more than one nest in any given year so you know maybe two three four nests because they'll be constructing one and then snakes will move in or another bird will push them out you know bird of prey or something so yeah i don't 
think that they use the nests over and over again, but they're hell-bent on building loads of them, so I think they just build a new one anyway. I also saw fish eagles in Africa. I used to go fishing on the dam with my cousin, and African fish eagles would be plucking huge bream out of the water next to us on, on, the, on the lake. Yeah, it was an oh, incredible time. I was so aware as well that I was that I should drink all of this in, you know, and remember it. Yeah. Well, Mackenzie, you've named your five favourite birds. The ones that will populate this desolate post-apocalyptic wasteland. But now you must choose your absolute favourite. The one to become your pirate's parrot or your spirit guide like the eagle your character Oral in Game of Thrones has. The bird that will journey with you through this wasteland of a world that we're left with. So I've got a sneaking suspicion I know which one it's going to be, but which bird is going to be your totem spirit bird? Uh, I reckon your suspicion is probably right. I have to choose the robin. And if I could choose an individual, then it would be Winter George, my, my, the robin in my garden. He's, I mean, not only fills me with joy when he's around, but he's such a fierce, fierce creature. I know you used to ask to pick one of the choices against your peregrine falcon. And, and as far as fierceness and, and courage, I think... Robin would match a peregrine. But yeah, it's a beautiful bird and that's who I should choose to be my companion. The Robin it is, what a, a great choice. And a specific individual, it's even better. Right, Mackenzie, thanks so much for coming on today and, and talking birds with me. It's been fantastic. It's been an absolute pleasure, Kit. Thank you. Well, that's everything for this week, folks. Do join me next time when my special guest will be the author, Nicolette Chester. Until then, bye for now. Bye.